0: to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to steal this, whoever this belongs to. 1 John chapter 5. And if you would stand, we're going to begin by reading. uh, Starting in verse 13 this morning. John writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence today acknowledging that we have not lived under verse 21. That we are altogether unprofitable servants who idolize the things of this world. Father, we trust that only you can set us free from the power of sin and death. That only you can open our eyes, spiritually speaking, to behold wonderful things in your word. And we ask that you do that even yet. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. We as little children are called here in this passage yet again to keep ourselves from idols. What an easy task. (laughs) Except for the reality that we are so fallen and this world is so uh, deceitful. The, The journey in this life is one where we are constantly confronted by idols and not idols Merely in an external sense, my, what an, uh, what an easier task we would have if the idols that we faced were merely external. The tricky part is that most of our idols do not rise from without, but in fact they come from the depths of our own hearts. The human heart, Calvin says, is a perpetual factory of idols. What we want... A God that conforms to us. Uh, one who rules according to our thoughts, our likes, our needs. We like a local God who conforms to the religious preferences that we are used to. And so it's important that we must be ever so careful to come under and not over the weight Of Scripture. We must endeavor to know the living God for who He reveals Himself to be and how He actually is at work in the universe. John, I I believe, has not just brought us to verse 21 and and kind of like a punk pastor, and there are many of those, uh, just leveled on us verse 21 like He's just thrown a bomb. Little children, don't idolize. And he's just that. That's the first place that he's come to that uh, exhortation. In fact, I think really there is a way to see First John that this is the emphasis of all of John's writing. In fact, if we look back at chapter one, verse five, we'll find these words: "This is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you: that God is light." and in Him is no darkness at all. He describes there one of the characteristics of who the living God is. And this declaration in verse 5, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, is a very profound declaration. And it leads us to a conversation that we're going to have today about the righteousness of God. We're going to deal with the holiness of God, but the righteousness of God is kind of a a subset in our thinking about God Himself and His character. Uh, Our God is a righteous God. There are many different words and expressions in the Bible that point to the righteous character of God. First, the, the Bible speaks of Him being perfect. Um, The the Hebrew word that we translate as perfect really speaks of a sacrificial animal who is presented without blemish. And, and, And what we need to see in all of God's righteousness as we discuss it is that primarily righteousness has to be couched in a legal conversation. Righteousness is a conversation about justice. A God who rules and gives statutes and commands that are righteous. They are just. They are good. And what we find in this first word perfect is that the decrees of God, the law of God, the things that God has prescribed and that he restrains us from are altogether perfect. They are without defect. God's commands ...are not things that we should argue away. God's commands are not something that we should trifle with. They are perfect and righteous because they emanate from God. There is this entire way of thinking, and you've probably experienced it... ...where we, uh, we in conversations about who the living God is and how to relate to His law... Uh, ...we kind of hear this idea that, well, God is is good and He is righteous, but, gosh, there's some antiquated realities about the Ten Commandments. But, friends, we can't divide. Now, I'm not saying we idolize the Ten Commandments, uh, but we can't divide God's decrees from His person because they flow out of who He is. They are in a a loving expression of who He is. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 22 says, This God... Uh, his His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all of those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? When we look at the Lord, when we consider who God is, we need to see Him without blemish in all that He does, including His giving of the law, second, so he's perfect in his righteousness, second, the word uh, judgment, his decisions, the, the character uh, of one who is the judge, Isaiah chapter thirty, verse eighteen, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice, blessed are those who wait. For Him, He exercises His sovereign righteousness over all of creation. Our God not only gives the decrees, but He rules over everything He has decreed with perfect righteousness. With perfect uprightness. Calvin says, it is impossible for God, who is the judge of the world, and who by nature loves equity, yea, whose will is a law of justice and rectitude, that he would in the least degree swerve from righteousness. Isn't that wonderful? To know that not only does God love equity and love justice, but that He rules in righteousness. We may not always see that in this life, beloved. Some of of us have experienced great harm And have been victimized in many ways. And we don't see how God is ruling righteously. But I think that's where Calvin is also helpful in what he says. That in those moments where we don't see the righteousness of God in judging and executing justice. Which, side note... Friends, we should all rejoice when we have that question of well, why doesn't God punish the evildoer immediately after the offense? Why doesn't He just zap him? The answer is because we'd all be dead. Uh, we should all rejoice in the reality that God's justice at times is delayed because that delay allowed for Him to sovereignly bring us to repentance and faith. What a joy that is. But further, as we experience suffering for righteousness' sake, we need to come and have the mind that Calvin has here when he says in those moments that we don't see, we can go to God and pour into His lap the difficulties that torment us in order that He may loosen the knots that we cannot untie. Friends, the reality of why we are in a political quagmire in this nation Why there are so many people ticked off about injustices that really happened 50 and 100 and 150 years ago. And seemingly we can't come to a solution is because we are not taking those lamentable offenses before a holy God. We're trying to untie them on our own. And all we've done is tied ourselves in knots. But our God in His righteousness, He's perfect in His his statutes. He's perfect in His judgment. He is also this word upright. Again, these legal terms. It it means that God does what is right in His own eyes. We constantly, in our generation, see the mobs crying out for equity in all things. We, We want to be equal everywhere. That is the mantra of our day. Well, we may disagree with the application of equity in this generation, but one day God will apply the law uprightly, equitably across the board. God's justice, when when you see people who are willing to slaughter children by the bushel, crying out for equality in all things, you shouldn't be angry at them, you should shudder, because you need to understand that they are going to get what they're asking for. They will get an equitable application of the law in all things God is not in his righteousness a respecter of persons he does what is right Do you remember the question that Abraham asks in Genesis chapter 18 shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right that's a big question and you know what the answer is yes he will He will do what is right because He is righteous. He is upright in His judgments. All that He does is perfect and complete. So as we again come and think about the current state of our own community and state and nation, we live in a time when what is just is called unjust. And where right is ridiculed and what is uh, against the law of God is openly celebrated in the streets. We, we have leaders who suppress the truth. We have men who invade the pulpit and abuse the flock that is entrusted to them. Uh, we see so clearly the, the, the abuses of righteousness in our generation that I don't even need to illustrate them. They're on display proudly throughout our nation. And some of us may be duped into believing that this is something that has just happened recently. Uh, The truth is, uh, the the, the way in which unrighteousness is pervaded in the nation may have changed in degrees, but beloved, we as fallen sinners have always lacked righteousness. Man by nature is a fallen mess. We are sold under sin apart from grace. In fact, The question, will the judge of all the earth do what is right, is couched in showing a larger problem of the unrighteousness of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And beloved, I think sometimes we believe that we live in Mayberry when all we've done is taken down the Sodom and Gomorrah sign and put up the welcome to Mayberry sign. We all live in Sodom and Gomorrah. Every generation in the face of a holy God, has been a generation that has gone its own way. Listen to the the context of the question, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Listen to what is written here under the inspiration of Almighty God in Genesis chapter 18. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so the earth so, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. And then the question, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the Lord said, if I find it Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. The question is, are there any righteous? Will one of us stand today and say we will be the righteous one to keep our city from destruction? I think it's important that we heed the words of Romans chapter 3. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, this is where we live. This is our unrighteousness. The problem that we all face is that God is righteous and we are not. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of a righteous God. We all have gone our own way. But our God, as we have learned, is glorious. He is good. And He is righteous. All that He does is perfect and upright and just. And instead of seeing the problem that that we are none of these things, we by nature, instead of seeing the reality that our God is perfect in the law that He has decreed, He is the one who executes those judgments perfectly and He is upright and one day will with equity... Judge the earth according to those decrees. Instead of going, oh, then then in God's righteousness, we should live according to His law. Instead of doing that by our very nature, you know what we do? We attack the law. The problem couldn't be our sin. The problem must be the law. The law is an emanation from God and He is righteous. And any time we attack the law, we are attacking His character. Who He is and how He has shown His love towards us. Now the amazing reality in all of this, again, we're, we're in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. And He has told us that there is this God who is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And if that's all we knew we would be the most miserable of all people. But the reality is that this righteous God who will execute justice equitably and perfectly is also a redeeming God. And a God who has sent His own Son in the fullness of time to redeem all of those who would call upon His righteous name. A joy that we have comes in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Listen to these words. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. We've talked about this. He is the propitiator, the only one who can bear the wrath of God for our failing to live up to His righteous decrees. His is a righteous work of regenerating redemption in the lives of those that He intends to save. And this isn't just the story of 1 John chapter 2, it's the story of all of the Bible. Psalm 78 for a father of five is one of my favorite because it is a psalm that encourages my wife and I and every set of parents, not to hide the redemptive works of God from our children, but to instruct them and to teach them. Listen to verse 4. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. This this text teaches us something about the righteous character of God. Our God would have been just to merely lay out the law, to to judge rightly, and to execute equity upon the earth. But He went further than that, and He redeemed His people not by their works, but by His mighty deeds. And now He calls us to speak of that throughout all generations. He, he, He doesn't just tell us, I'm a righteous God. But in fact, from Genesis to Revelation is a story that our God is a redeeming God not only in who He is but in all that He does. Now tell your kids about it. That's what Psalm 78 is telling us. The the righteous judge of all of the earth has done righteousness on the earth. It's not as though He created the earth and then somehow in Genesis chapter 3 as sin entered that the human condition God took his hands off and no longer judges and exercises righteousness on the earth. That's not the reality. God instead moves in our direction and does what is righteous according to his own decrees for his own glory. And we, beloved, are the beneficiaries. What a joy that should be. From Adam to this present day, God has not stopped showing his righteous character to his people. He has not relented for one second in completing the redemption that he promised from the garden. He's not backed off from it. He is doing exactly what he says he will do. do. Do you remember when God delivered the children then, it, 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 having in our minds that God is righteous. Do you remember when God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt? That was a righteous act that God had done. and God was displaying His righteousness to His people, His, his kindness in that act of bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And do you remember what they did immediately after that righteous deed? Aaron, give us an idol. Give us something that we can worship. Give us something we're used to. If this would have been Baptists in the desert, they would have went to Aaron and said, we want a potluck. Give us everything that we perceive to be right to worship. But friends, here's the reality. I think in our own generation, we think we've moved past that. We haven't. Because it's no more baffling that that, that they wanted a golden calf to worship than the reality that in many churches throughout the past hundred years in this country, we have built our churches around a very peculiar idol, and that is the idol of self-righteousness. We have a righteous God who set us free from our unrighteousness by the precious blood of his Son. And instead of worshiping him in spirit and in truth and depending upon him and his decrees and nothing else, we come into the sanctuary and we say, But we need to add something. We need to add our own righteousness. We we, we need to make up a list of club rules. And we're all comfortable with that, so it's no big deal. The righteous judge of all the earth is coming to judge in equity. And this is the God who when Uzzah put his hand on the cart to steady the ark, he struck him dead. We dare not trifle with the righteousness of God by trying to add our own to it. In any way. In any form. And I don't care where you learn that that's the right thing to do. That's the damnable thing to do. And I love you enough to tell you that. Here it comes. This is is what we do. We come in and we're so enthralled by righteousness that we, 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 we think we can bring that righteousness to God and that is not true. In fact, that's the whole thrust, I think, of Luke chapter 18, this parable that Jesus gives. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Oh, God have mercy on us for treating others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I get. uh, But the tax collector, standing far off, Would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Beloved we have got to be so mindful that this self-righteous streak creeps in and we make an idol of our own goodness. God help us not to be those people. And, and, and you've heard me talk about these two things that I'm going to share with you. But I, I want to kind of think about them in a little bit of a new light. I, I think that they're really under that banner of self-righteousness. We can put these two categories of dealing with the law that you've heard of. Uh, of antinomianism and legalism. Uh, Antinomianism being against the law or or believing in some fashion that that the law is of no use and no effect and we don't have to uh, pay attention to it at all. And then legalism is that idea where we look for salvation in our own righteousness. The the, the Pharisee here had a degree of legalism in his heart. He He starts acknowledging the law that God had given in such a way that through his own strength he had accomplished it he had done it he had gained salvation through it and we need to think about these categories because we all swerve into their lanes antinomianism is really I think illustrated here in this in in the passage that deal in Genesis chapter 3 you you remember that that God has given the garden for the flourishing of Adam and Eve and And Satan comes in and tempts Eve. And I want us to think about this briefly in light of an an antinomian or against the law, against God's righteousness kind of perspective. Starting in verse 1, he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Part of what's going on there is is Satan is subtly tempting Eve to believe that God has leveled this heavy-handed law upon her in such a way that he merely wants to restrain her. It is not for her good, and she needs to not live under that oppression. She she needs to, to see the fact that God's just merely trying to control her in a way that is unloving and unhelpful. And friends, that is at the heart of antinomianism, an ideology that says God doesn't love me if I have to live according to what he has commanded. But isn't that absurd when we think about The entire Genesis narrative of creation and that God has given humanity of his own kindness, all of the other trees and all of the goodness of creation and companionship and all of those things for our flourishing. And yet this one tree, he says, don't. Because the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. His commands are righteous and they come from a place of love. But the antinomian spirit really says, I don't trust that. I don't trust that God is loving in all of his decrees. You see, under the the antinomian disguise of being against the law, there really is this form of legalism that believes the righteousness of God is somehow divorced from his commands. Now, often, and I think in error, I have spoken to you about legalism and antinomianism kind of being these two ditches that we fall off in. Like being the kind of person that's rebellious and doesn't think the law should apply in our context and in our life. And then there's the, the, the view of legalism and trying to gain salvation through it. And they're, they're juxtaposed to one another. But friends, I really don't believe that's true. I think they are both companions. They, they really fit together. They, they, they see uh, God's righteous decrees as something less. One sees the law as too much and the other sees the law as not enough. The legalist often will come to the law of God and say, well, I mean, God, you got it almost right. But I really wish you would have written in some things about prohibition in here and... Um, you know some of my other preferences really should have been addressed that's an attack against the righteousness of god because god's statutes are perfect they're complete they lack nothing that the the legalist is wrong in that sense the other view here of antinomianism takes on the same nuance of really believing that the law of God somehow is too heavy-handed and is not a loving uh, declaration of God's kindness to His creation. I, I think we see people swerve. If we think about legalism and antinomianism as though they were camps and there was a bunch of people who were one way over here and a bunch of people who were another way over here we really get the picture wrong because what ends up happening in the final analysis is we all run from one side to the other in certain circumstances we turn into legalists but then given the right conditions and the right situation we turn into antinomians who go i don't want the law at all and again, what is being displayed here is the reality that in our hearts and minds, we believe the problem is with the law, but the problem isn't the law, the problem is our sin. Think about the reality illustrating the, the, the antinomian from Genesis chapter 3. Think about the legalist. Um, prodigal son who returns home we remember this narrative the prodigal who asks his father for his inheritance early he squanders it listen to see if you can hear his legalism as he's returned from antinomianism in luke chapter 15 but when he came to himself he said how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I will go to my Father and I I will say to Him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before You and I'm no longer worthy to be called Your Son. Treat me as one of Your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion. And he ran and he braced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put the ring on his hand and the shoes on his feet and and bring the fatted calf and kill it and, and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Do you hear the words of the prodigal? As he returns from his antinomian rebellion, he, he, he comes back and he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. There is in his mind this legalistic impulse that the way that I become your son is by living according to the dictates of your law. Friends, we've never been children of God because we've lived under the law perfectly. That is not what it means to be redeemed of God. So if then, and it is, that uh, antinomianism and legalism are just twins marching on the same error, then what's the solution? How do we live in light of who God is neither in legalism or antinomianism. The answer to that is grace. We live under the unmerited favor of a holy, righteous God. A God who has loved us with an everlasting love not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. I think it was Sinclair Ferguson who wrote, Grace lances the boil of merit and that of self-righteousness. Grace is the thing that when we puff ourselves up and we think in our own religious idolatry that we can please God apart from God, grace enters in and says, No, that's not the way it works. Grace confronts us that we are absolutely bankrupt and we need the mercy of God. And that is the only way we can stand before Him. This song, I think, spells this out well. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with You. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. God saves sinners again by His, own mer- his unmerited favor. There is no un- other way. There is no alternative. Beloved, I know that we all grew up hearing that if you put your name on a little card and you walk an aisle and you pray a prayer then God promises you eternity God promises eternity to all of those who repent and believe and that only happens by divine grace Amen. The other is a lie Amen. And we dare not tell our children to rest their eternity on a, a decision card Don't 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 rest, Robbie, on on something that you do. Rest on Christ alone. Because it is God who chooses His elect. It is God who calls them. It is God who regenerates them. It is God who sanctifies them. It is God who glorifies them. And it is He who does all of those things righteously. But the self-righteous brother will stand up and say, wait, 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 wait. There was a preacher I knew and he was a really nice guy and he illustrated his sermons really well and I believe that it's just, you know, it's all of our decision. We're just going to add that little bit. The self-righteous person will say, if God is really the one that chooses, then what difference does it make how I live my life? Do you hear in that, a subtle indictment against the righteousness of God. If God is the one who has decreed it, then it's been done in perfect righteousness. If you do it, it's been done in perfect rebellion. So we must rest and rejoice in the reality that it is God alone who brings us to salvation. And I know that this is what Paul is talking about in, verse, uh, in, in chapter 6 of Romans. Listen to what he asks What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus are baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into His death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This entire conversation. The the, the, the thrust against Paul is, Paul, if it is really about the grace of God, if it is God's unmerited favor, and there is no real religious thing we have to do transactionally to earn the favor of God, then people are going to sin. That's the accusation. If it really is all of grace... Then, then, then how does this work out? And, and that has to be how this is being asked because the question doesn't make any sense any other way. The, the, the grace of God defined by the questioner is a grace that comes without merit, without anything. The only way to interpret that passage is by God's free, sovereign grace. God chooses to save sinners for Himself, by Himself, from Himself. When he does, religious people will show up like the older brother and say, that's not fair. We want to earn it. Beloved, you can't earn it. You can only throw yourself on the mercy of God and worship Him that He is righteous and good and glorious. You see how far man has fallen? That even... In His righteous exercise of grace, man will sneer at the living God. And so the question remains, what shall we say then? Does does grace lead to an antinomian or a legalistic mindset? And the answer is no, because when He saves you, He does not leave you. Because here's what happens. When God saves a sinner... Instead of the law being inscribed on tablets of stone, where does he write it? On our heart. He regenerates us. He makes us new. He takes away the heart of stone. And you could chisel a thousand laws on that heart and it would never be redeemed. But when he gives us a heart that beats after Christ and he writes the law of the Lord upon it, we find the law... Not something to escape, not something to argue, but something that instructs us that we are unrighteous and we need the righteousness of Christ. We need His kindness. I, I think that's what Paul is really aiming at when he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 here. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Beloved, we have a righteous God who really has redeemed us. If there's any impulse in you that looks at the law and says, this is good and right, and I want to see it flourishing in my life, it is because the judge of all the earth, has done what is right in his own eyes and has brought you from death to life. And the only thing to do then is to keep yourself from idols and to worship in spirit and in truth. Little children, keep yourself from the idol of self-righteous delusions because the righteous grace of our almighty God is ever before us. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence So thankful for Your mercy. So thankful that in our unrighteous state, You did not leave us. Father, we're thankful that we are given Your Word, that we can understand Your character and who You are, what You've done. Father, I pray that if there's one here that doesn't know You, who is depending on their own religious goodness for salvation, Father, I pray you would mercifully crush that idol, show them the goodness of Christ, that they might turn in repentance and faith. Father, we know that ultimately that is the gift you've given to all of us who are in Christ. And so I pray today that you would encourage our hearts to rejoice in your righteousness and to lay ours down often at your feet.